I always get choked up whenever I watch videos online of people receiving some kind of vision or hearing for the first time. All over the internet, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, you can just look it up. All over the internet uh, are these popular videos of like a, an infant or a child who was born without a very good ability to hear and then they receive a hearing implant and then they can hear their mother's voice for the first time. All right, or people who are colorblind and then they get these special glasses where they can see colors and they see color for the first time. And anytime someone sort of receives new vision or new hearing, it's, it's amazing how emotional it is for them, how overwhelming it is for them. And I can't but help be drawn into that. And it's just so hard for me not to cry. And I think that's the case for most of us. I think generally speaking, most people enjoy watching other people receive the help that they need. We like watching people get help. We like watching people receive that which they need. But unfortunately, not everyone is like that. There was a group of men, especially in the first century, who had a very hard time rejoicing with those who rejoice. And they were, as many of you know, belonged to the party of what we call the Pharisees. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 9, verses 12 through 34. John chapter 9, 12 through 34. When you found John chapter 9, verse 12, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 12, thus saith the Lord. Or forgive me, uh, verse 13, sorry, beginning in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But, now, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper, for, worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. 
Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, we've been blessed to have a lot of visitors here with us today. And so if you're a visitor, you've probably not been tracking along in the book of John with us. Uh, We've been working through the gospel of John. And last week, Jesus performed a miracle. There was a man born blind. Jesus put mud on his eyes, told him to go wash. And after he did that, he was able to see. And Jesus has been quite the controversial figure throughout the gospel of John. And so it was natural that when this controversial rabbi from Nazareth healed a man born blind, it's natural that the people would want to know what their pastors think of this situation, right? What do our religious leaders think of Jesus healing this man? So they bring him to the Pharisees to get their take on the subject. And my first instinct would be, before we sort of begin to parse this out, uh, shouldn't they just celebrate with him for a moment? Like, shouldn't there just be rejoicing that however it happened, this man now sees for the first time in his life, I would expect that they cared for this man at all. Before they made any kind of legal pronouncements, there would be at least some level of good for you, we're so happy for you. But no, these self-centered, arrogant legalists, they care nothing for this man. They have no interest in the fact that a man born blind, lived his whole life as a beggar on the streets, can now see. They don't care about that. They cut right to the interrogation. Who did this? How did this happen? And they're skeptical. They don't even believe him. This probably did not happen. They, they just jump right into these, technical, these technicalities about Sabbath laws. Now, it's interesting because they're not even on the same page yet. Right? So some of them have these Sabbath laws in mind. Jesus broke the Sabbath laws when he healed this man. So he's obviously an enemy of God. And the others are saying, I don't know how an enemy of God could do these things. So even they are not on the same page. Is Jesus a sinner or not? Now it's important to keep in mind um, how the word sinner is being used in this passage. Uh, the word sinner is not being used in a, in a very literal sense. Meaning anyone technically who has ever committed a sin is by definition a sinner. So in that sense... Every person in this room is a sinner. But oftentimes the word sinner is used in the Bible more as like a broad category. And it's similar to how we use the word unbeliever. Someone who's not in friendship with God. So there's a certain sense in which everyone in this room is a sinner. But there's another sense, if you have been reconciled to God, you no longer belong to that category of the damned. So you are not a sinner any longer. And that's how they're using it here. So they're not just talking about technically has he ever committed a sin. They're asking the question, is Jesus in friendship? Is he in right relationship? Is he in covenant with God? Or is he an unbeliever? Is he a pagan? Is he outside of relationship with God? And even they haven't been able to make up their mind yet. And so in order to help them settle the issue, they consult the man's parents to make sure this isn't all just one big ruse. Like, what if Jesus and this guy are just charlatans, and they made this plan, and he pretended to be blind? And so they consult the only people who could be remotely close to a reliable witness as to this man's past. Like, how do we know this guy was even born blind? 
Really, the most reliable witnesses to that fact would be his parents. Right? I'm sure his own mother has an idea of whether he was blind as a child or not. So they bring the parents in to interrogate them. And unfortunately, the parents are not brave enough to say anything positive about Jesus because of fear of being excommunicated. So they don't show any courage as it pertains to, yeah, we know it was Jesus and we know what that means. It means this guy's special. He's not a sinner. They're not willing to say that. So they just kick the buck to their son and sort of leave him hanging out to dry. Say, listen, he's a legal adult. He's allowed to stand trial. If you want to know what you think of Jesus, just talk to him. But they're at least able and at least willing to give testimony. Yes, this is our son and he was born blind and he does now see. And if you want to know how that happened, just talk to him. They're not brave enough to confess Christ. But they do confirm the man's testimony, which is helpful for us because now that they've had two testimonies confirmed by their own law, they should actually be taking this seriously. But they don't, and that reveals to us that just how hardened their hearts are towards Jesus. Look at verses 24 through 26 with me again. So for the second time... They called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? So while initially there was some debate among the Pharisees, it appears that they've reached a conclusion. They now stand before this man for the second time in one accord. We, collectively, we know, we've made our decision. Jesus is a sinner. Jesus is a sinner. And so now they're telling him to give glory to God and admit it. That, that phrase, by the way, give glory to God, it's weird in English. But that was basically just a Hebrew way of, of basically making an oath. Of, of saying like, uh, in God's name, tell us the truth. Like, because God is never honored by lies, right? So stop dishonoring God with your lies and honor God and tell the truth. We, we see an example of it used, by the way, in Joshua 7. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Right, this is the same way that phrase is being used. So essentially, they're accusing this man of being a liar. You've been hiding the truth from us. We've found it out. And so it's time for you, in the presence of God, to give glory to God and admit what we all know to be true here. That this was all one big ruse. They've concluded Jesus is a sinner. Now let me ask you this. What convinced them of that? Like how, how did they reach this conclusion? Because so far their witnesses have only given reliable account to the man's testimony. They've, they've not received any new evidence. They've not received any, any you know, turning of, of, of what has happened. All they have see, received so far is evidence to the contrary, and yet they still come to the conclusion that Jesus is a sinner. And so what does that tell you? It tells you they made up their minds beforehand. They knew what they wanted to believe about Jesus, and they were just hoping the evidence would go their way. But they've not made a decision based on evidence here. They've made a decision contrary to evidence here. They are biased against Jesus. This is not a fair court. 
Now, they're trying to hide their bias, right? They're trying to have this very austere, just impartial objective. We're just, we're just here asking questions. We're just here trying to, trying to get to know the truth. But we know that that's, that's the actual ruse here. They're, these are not sincere questions. They're not interested in this man's testimony. They want to exert their power and their authority to bully this man, to pressure him, to silence him, and to get him to speak a lie. And the former blind man, I love this guy. He is such an underrated character in Scripture. He sees what's going on, and so he decides now's the time to get snarky. Look at 27 and 28. He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? He's mocking them because he knows what's going on. He knows you're no longer, you're not being serious, so I'm done being serious too. So he mocks them. They're pretending to be objective inquirers when really they're just tyrants and bullies. And that's why he jokes around, you guys seem pretty interested in Jesus. You want to follow him with me? Now, of course, they don't take kindly to this. They get really mad at him for this joke. And he doesn't back down. Look at 28 through 31. And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And then here are the blind man's response. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. So the Pharisees revile this man, and they claim that Jesus is at odds with Moses, which, by the way, is the very paradigm that remains today as to why Jews are not Christians. This is it right here, because they think Jesus is opposed to Moses. This is why we have to pray for our Jewish neighbors. They say Jesus is at odds with Moses. And then, like I said, something truly amazing happens. This homeless beggar beats them at their own game. He gets theological with them. Here, the homeless blind man stands in front of the PhDs and takes them to school. He says, isn't this amazing? You guys, you really, you don't get it. You don't know who Jesus is? Oh, that's funny because he opened up my eyes. And the Bible teaches us that God would never ever be on the side of a person. He would never give miracles to a demon-possessed sinner. This is amazing. In other words, he's saying, this is common sense. And the PhDs don't get it. And that's why, again, I love this man. I don't know his name. But I love him. He stands in front of the Pharisees and he shows no fear and he reasons with them better than they do. Which I think serves a really important reminder for us, which is that as Christians, one of the privileges of being a Christian is that we get to humble ourselves and be willing to learn from any man or woman. As, as Christians, we get to humble ourselves and never look down upon a person and think they have nothing to contribute to us on any level. The Pharisees needed to be willing to humble themselves and listen to a beggar. But they don't. But I think for our time, we should not follow in their example, and we should. So for the rest of our time, I want us to ask, what is it that we learn from this former blind man? 
What's he teaching us in his circumstances right now? Because as I see it, God, to his glory, has taken what we call a sink or swim approach with this blind man. This guy is not even a true believer yet. We're, we're going to see that next week. He's not even a saved yet. He's not a full-fledged follower of Christ yet. And yet, God has already, he's, he's only just barely on the precipice of following Jesus, and God has already thrown him into the lion's den. You know, so many of us, we're converted, and we get this awesome little honeymoon phase, and then the world gets really hard after that. This guy didn't get that. It was just, I, I like this Jesus guy. He just showed me incredible kindness and power. And then, boom, he already is hammered with two of the most dangerous threats that continue to threaten our Christian walk today. So we can learn a lot about the situation that he's in. We can learn a lot about these dangers to our faith and maybe even come away with some strategies for how to overcome them. So let's look at them. As I see it, there are two ever-present dangers to our Christian walk that this man encountered right from the get-go. And the first one is the danger of tradition. The danger of tradition. Read verses 14 through 16 with me again. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. What we see here is, is a common theme in the Gospel of John and in all the Gospels. One of the Pharisees' chief concerns with Jesus is that he continually breaks the Sabbath. There's no way this guy is a follower of God. There's no way he's a follower of Moses. He doesn't respect one of the most important traditions given to us. The Sabbath. He breaks the Sabbath. But let me ask you this question. If you could, you don't have to answer out loud, but just think off the top of your head. Which Sabbath law did Jesus break in the whole ordeal? Do you know of any Old Testament verse that says you're not allowed to perform miracles on the Sabbath? You know, it's interesting, the way that John wrote this, you notice how he, he specified in verse 14, now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. John's trying to tell us something. You want to know apparently what one of the Sabbath laws Jesus broke was? You're not allowed to make mud. Show me that in the Bible. Where does the Bible say that? The problem is, is the Pharisees weren't getting these things from the Bible. The Pharisees, and this continues in Judaism today, received and contained to have these extra-biblical traditions. And although they are now written down in the Mishnah, they were for a long time claimed to be oral traditions that were outside of the Bible, but Moses taught them and they were handed down from Moses orally all the way to the Pharisees today. So the Pharisees had extra-biblical, outside-of-Scripture Sabbath laws, and you can go up and pull them up online and read just how rigorous they are. The, the, the relevant ones for us today is according to these extra-biblical Sabbath prohibitions, there are certain things like you can't walk a certain distance on the Sabbath because then that walking is too long, it becomes work, and you're not allowed to work. You're not allowed to knead bread or make clay on the Sabbath. And so the way they see it is by making clay. Jesus basically did that when he made the mud. So you're not allowed to make clay on the Sabbath. And there are even prohibitions against healing. If someone is sick, a nurse cannot attend to them on the Sabbath. 
So Jesus, according to them, broke three Sabbath laws. He worked a work of healing, not allowed to do that. He made clay, not allowed to do that. And then he caused the other guy to break the Sabbath by making him walk to the pool of Siloam. So in their mind, Jesus is breaking all of these Sabbath laws that the Pharisees believe came down from Moses. And so what we learn from this is that it was these extra biblical traditions that came in and corrupted the right reading of the Bible. And it led them to destroy their faith and countless others. That's the danger of tradition. It can corrupt the true faith and it can drastically alter the lenses in which we read our Bibles. Now, I should take a step back and clarify what I mean more specifically. I don't want you to think like the word tradition is a bad word in general. Because the, the problem with the word like tradition is it can be defined in a multitude of different ways. Um, so I don't want to act like all forms of tradition are bad. Anytime you hear the word tradition, it's automatically a bad thing. A tradition is simply anything that's been passed down. It's pretty broad. So technically, every person in this room has a plethora of traditions that you believe and that you maintain. We all have traditions. The Bible itself even refers to the Bible as being a tradition. Right? We get this from the Apostle Paul who says in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So according to Paul, what do his letters contain? Tradition. So please don't hear me saying that tradition is a bad word all of the time. Avoid all tradition. No, that's simply not the case. The Christian faith is a tradition. Sometimes we talk about the Reformed tradition or the Lutheran tradition, right? Traditions are all over us. It's not a bad word, but it is dangerous. It's not evil in all of its forms, but there are good traditions, there are divine traditions, and there are bad traditions, like the Pharisees. And so this raises the question, right? What's the elephant in the room here? How do we differentiate between a good and a bad tradition? Keep your marker in John, but turn to Mark chapter 7. Let's go to a different gospel to answer that question. How can we avoid the danger of tradition? Mark chapter 7. We're going to read 1 through 9 together. Mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 9. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, speaking of Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Read verse 10 with me. For Moses said... Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. 
But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, we don't have time to preach this whole passage, but let me just tell you what's happening. As you probably read, the Pharisees had these special washing traditions, and Jesus wasn't doing them. And so when Jesus, when they confront Jesus, he tells them, these are not commandments of God. They're commandments of men that you are pretending came from God. And so the question on our minds is, how did Jesus know that? How did he differentiate between commandments of God versus commandments of men? And what standard did Jesus turn to? Verse 10. For Moses said. And then he quotes from something. Where do you think that comes from? The Bible. The Bible. So in other words, Jesus is establishing a practice for us. How do you, what is the standard of faith for you? What is the judge of all other traditions? Scripture. Scripture. And so in other words, let me put it very simply. How is it that we avoid the danger of tradition? It's by appealing to a principle that the Reformation called sola scriptura. Which is a Latin phrase for scripture alone. The way we overcome the threat of tradition is by making scripture our highest authority and judging all other things in light of it. We treat the scriptures alone as what Jesus says here, the word of God, and we make it the standard for all religious claims. That's sola scriptura. And matter of fact, the reason the reformers had to give a name to this practice is because this is exactly what the Protestant Reformation was all about. The reason we are not a Roman Catholic church here is because we believe that that church has allowed a slow development of extra-biblical traditions which have corrupted the Christian faith. These theological accretions were accepted because Rome rejected Sola Scriptura early on and accepted oral tradition as an infallible source of revelation alongside Scripture. Who does that sound like in Mark chapter 7? Do you see the danger of making oral tradition infallible? And so the reformers decided, we're going to act like Jesus and not like the Pharisees. We're not going to treat oral traditions or church history like it's infallible, but we're going to treat the scriptures like they are alone infallible. And when we take these traditions and compare them to scripture, they fall short. The whole enterprise of the Protestant movement has been a return to Jesus' standard of holding scripture as the highest form of authority even over your alleged traditions. So sola scriptura is how we avoid the danger of tradition which the Pharisees, the Roman church, the Eastern churches, and many other people have fallen victim to. Be very leery of tradition. But there's another danger. We can go back to John chapter 9. There's another danger in our text. This is the more obvious one, one you were probably thinking of, which is this, the danger, broadly speaking, of persecution. The danger of persecution. John chapter 9. Let's read verses 22 through 24 together. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. 
So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. When the Pharisees questioned the former blind man's parents, we learned something very sad. We learned that the Pharisees are excommunicating people from the synagogue if they believe and follow Jesus. And this is no empty threat, by the way, because they do it to him. Verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. They excommunicated him from church for following Jesus. Unfortunately, his parents succumbed to their threats. They were unwilling to share their common sense notion about Jesus because they were so afraid of being kicked out of church. Their son was legally old enough to speak for himself, so they left him to fend for himself. And this is why the Pharisees bring him in for a second time, only this time they've made it clear that their minds were made up a long time ago and they're convinced that Jesus is a liar. And so what they do in this situation is they abuse their authority and they exercise pressure on this man. And this is a form of persecution. We have to be very careful in our minds that when we think of persecution, we only think of like worst case scenario. Like, unless I'm getting my head cut off, unless I'm thrown in prison for the rest of my life, unless I'm dead, I'm not being persecuted. No, there are a variety of ways that Satan employs persecution and pressure is one of them. And I would, I would go on to say that this is the, the worst kind of pressure you can have because this isn't social pressure. Social persecution is difficult enough. And what I mean by social persecution, I mean like your family, your friends, your neighbors, they will sometimes hate you for Christ. They will sometimes mock you for Christ. But what's far more dangerous and intimidating than social pressure, social persecution, is institutional persecution. Because institutions have what your neighbor doesn't have, which is power and resources. They're the ones who can really make it hurt. And all throughout Christianity's existence, it has oftentimes been the victim of institutional persecution. This can come from the institution of the state, the government, or believe it or not, it can even come from the institution of the church herself. If you don't believe me, that's what this man in John is going through. It's his religious leaders of all people who are persecuting him for his religion. The church herself can be a severe form of institutional persecution. I talked about the reformers once. Let's talk about them again. Yet again, that was the scenario of the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation happened as theologians began to protest ancient traditions. And who was it that came after them? The church. It was the church who burned them alive. It was the church who threw them in prison. It was the church who took away their teaching and their licenses. It was the church who came after them, just like it was the church that came after this man. And the church has resources and power and influence. And that's why it is a devastating thing when the church is exerting pressure upon you. Now, for the sake of appropriate application, it's probably better for us to think more and learn in terms of the state. Because the way our nation has been set up, we don't really have an institutional church the way it has been throughout most of the Western world, right? Ever since the conversion of Constantine, uh, the church has been largely institutionalized. And it's really, even though nowadays it's, it's pretty watered down, but still technically in the Vatican and in England, they have an institutional church. There's the Church of England. There's the Roman Catholic Church. But in America, we don't have the Church of America. 
right? We are a very deinstitutionalized nation as it pertains to the church. So the church doesn't have a lot of institutional power to come after any one person. But the state does. Our government does. And that is another form of institutional persecution. And it's another form, forgive me, that Christians for centuries have been victims to. Before that conversion of Constantine, the Roman government was ruthless to Christians. There is probably no threat quite as serious and scary as the threat of the government. And although we don't have nearly the kind of severe persecution that Christians had in the first century, I would maintain that our government still does do exactly what happens in John 9, which is they pressure us to lie. They offer threats of fines, censorship, and in some places, even prison time, if you won't go along with their orthodoxy. If you won't say their party line, you are threatened. They put the same kind of persecutional threat upon us to go against common sense and to say lies. Say things we know it's not true, but we're just going to say it so I can keep my job. That's what's happening to the blind man in John 9. I don't care what you think about Jesus. Just don't say it. Think about it. This isn't in my notes. This is free. This man now has his whole life ahead of him. He's been a beggar his entire life. He's been blind his entire life. He now has the chance to get his life back. So don't think this man has nothing to lose. He has everything to lose. He gets to get a job now and start a family now and be a functioning member of society now. And, and the church is saying, we won't let that happen. Unless you agree with us. And he looks them dead in the eyes and he says, I don't know if Jesus is a sinner or not, but here's what I do know. He healed me. And I'm not going to pretend like he didn't. And so he is providing for us a shining example. How is it that we can best avoid the persecution of our state? How is it we can avoid the pressure? How do we fight against it? The answer is simple. Live not by lies. As Christians, we fight persecution like the persecution of John 9 by doing exactly what our former blind man did. We speak the truth. Let's read it again, verses 32 through 34. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Notice what this man does in the face of excommunication. He does something very powerful. He tells the truth. And it enrages them. Do you see how angry they get? You would dare teach us, and they kicked him out. You can just see them grinding and gnashing their teeth. They're so mad. And that tells you something. What does that tell us? Our enemies hate your ability to speak the truth. They hate that. And you know why they hate that? Because they can't control it. They can control just about everything else in your life. They can kill you. They can hurt you. They can take your job. They can take your house. They can take your family. Our enemies have huge control over our lives. But there is only one thing that they can't take. You have to give it to them. And that is your ability to say true things. The blind man says, you can have whatever you want. Take this world. I know it's true. 
This enrages the enemy because they can't have it unless you give it to them. So don't give it to them. Our answer, we don't need power, we don't need resources, we don't need PhDs, we don't need weapons. We have a powerful, powerful weapon already, and that is the ability, the God-given ability to speak the truth. As a matter of fact, that phrase that I reference, live not by lies, is the phrase of a, of a very famous essay penned by a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote it because he was living under a, an oppressive communist regime and he could sense that the people are discouraged because what do we have to fight back? We don't have food. We don't have shelter. We don't have jobs. We don't have weapons. How could we ever, ever be victorious in this? And so he wrote an essay saying we have something. And that is the ability to just simply not go along with their lies. So he wrote an essay called Live not by lies. And he was heavily influenced by a famous Russian proverb which said that one word of truth outweighs the whole world. There is so much power in simply saying true things and refusing to participate in lies. Rod Dreher is a man who wrote a book on that essay with the same title, and I love it. In this, he says this, Once you perceive how the system runs on lies... Stand as firmly as you can on what you know to be true and real when confronted by those lies. Isn't that exactly what our blind man did? He's being interrogated and this, the moment it dawns on him, oh wait a minute, this is a sham, this is a kangaroo court. They're not interested in my testimony. They're just trying to pressure me into tell a lie. And he looks them straight in the face and says, I won't. Kick me out of church, I won't lie. What a powerful weapon we have to look lies in the face and say, I will not participate. That will change the world. You don't need to study philosophy to change the world. You don't need to memorize all the best evidences for the Christian faith. You don't need to get a PhD. Like our humble beggar here, all you need to do is to stand up to persecution that comes our way and say true things. Say common sense things. But I want us also to keep in mind something important. I've made this pretty political, but we need to understand that there are some truths more powerful than others. While as everything I am saying right now, I'm sure you have social issues going on in your head like transgenderism and abortion and homosexuality and different policies and lock-ins and all of these stuff. But let me tell you, the most important truth you can speak, the most important confession you wield is Jesus himself. There is no truth more terrifying to our enemies than confessing Christ before men. This is the truth, by the way, that you must confess to be saved. Jesus says this. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, Christian, you, I'm sorry, you do not have the luxury of having being a private Christian like the blind man's parents. That's not your luxury. Christianity is in front of the world. It's an in-your-face religion. And you must confess me before men, and I will also acknowledge before you, before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's a threat. The Apostle Paul softens that up a little bit. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Do you see the importance here? What's the most powerful weapon you have to say the truth about Jesus? Jesus is your weapon against persecution. When you confess Christ before men, 
No matter what else our enemies do, they lose. They lose. They'll revile us. They will hurt us. But as long as we say true things, and as long as we confess Christ, they lose. And so in summary, let's summarize this. The way to endure so many of the present dangers of our faith is oftentimes found by simply not going beyond what is written in confessing Christ to the nations. It really is that simple. Living according to the truth and according to the scriptures are how we survive in this world. So may we then, as those who confess Christ as Lord, go out into the world clinging to God's word and living not by lies. 